Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisbee and this podcast is the brainchild of Andy Ory, partner of Ory Clark, perhaps the only firm in the UK that specialises in both accountancy and the law. Andy is one of its partners and he made the observation that there are so many interesting clients working with the company doing so many interesting things and Andy wanted to find a means to share these wonderful stories with a broader audience and the result is this podcast. Hello Andy, how are you doing? Who have we got on the show today? What are we going to be talking about? Jesus, thanks Dominic. Uh, A hell of a build up there ladies and gentlemen, a very disappointing entry of myself but anyway, uh, we're we're joined by the illustrious and wonderful Martin Adams. CEO of a business called Codec. Codec are a very unusual uh, marketing technology business. They, they, they have a piece of technology that helps marketeers make decisions about, um, well, indeed, how to do their jobs, how to market things. Hey, hello, Martin, how are you doing? Good to see you. So uh, I think the starting question needs to be, um, well, where are you and what are you up to, mate? So over in uh, sunny Mexico City at the moment, I've been here for about four months, weathering uh, lockdown here and um, running the business. Now, I'm reading through um, your your credentials as a person, studied at Harvard Law School, former IP lawyer, keynote speaker at the European Commission, um, founded the Digital Leadership Council, founded Codec in 2015. And Codec has won all sorts of accolades, best artificial intelligence product, top 29 AI scale-ups in the UK, one of the UK's 50 most disruptive businesses, one of the UK's top 100 e-commerce trailblazers, one of the hottest artificial intelligence startups in Europe, according to TechCrunch. So interesting thing, Codec, I thought, what does it stand for? So in a kind of geeky techie way, it stands for um, community-driven economy. So we we believe that the you know the future of business is to understand communities online and to build relationships with them, and um, ultimately you know in our space and sort of marketing space to to make content to make advertising that actually you know that actually lends to having a loyal relationship with with online communities. So that's that's kind of what Codec means for us. I mean in the in the tech world, it is more like a bridge between. Kind of, if you look at headphones or something like that, the zeros and ones that are kind of going into your headphone but are unintelligible and unlistenable get converted through a bridge, which is essentially a codec, um, to the to the point where they're translated into into sound. So we kind of play with that concept that the big unstructured world of data online, which is impossible for humans to understand, we are the codec. We are the bridge that turns it into something meaningful and useful in the real world. Very good. It sounds like you're sort of in a funny, like almost like a gatekeeper or, or, or a translator or something like that. But tell us something that you've recently bridged, something that you've recently made comprehensible. Yeah. So what we do, we, we kind of looked at the internet on a really sort of foundational architectural developer level and said, the, you know, the internet is made up broadly speaking of two things. It's made up of people like you and I who kind of move across different different platforms, different sources, um, different locations, different channels. And then the other piece is uh, content. 
URLs, basically. And it's the combination of those two things that makes up the consumer internet. And we kind of, if you look at the world of um, advertising, marketing, technology, they was kind of obsessed for 20 years with that first piece, with understanding people um, and tracking people and being kind of quite creepy, um, using cookies, doing kind of Cambridge Analytica type stuff, really dodgy stuff. And so when we started the business five, six years ago, partly given my background as an IP lawyer and having done a lot of work in data privacy and, and, and areas like that, we were like, let's invest seriously in the other side of the internet, which no one really seems to have done, which is building machine learning that can make sense of and classify you know, these, this content piece, these URLs. So that's broadly speaking on a lofty level. What we do is we kind of crunch about, uh, about a billion different kind of content interactions every single day. And we make sense of what that content actually is about. So that rather than just being a kind of very confusing URL, it actually, we can classify it and say, this ranks really, really highly for Brazilian jiu-jitsu or vegan cooking or, you know, Ethereum and blockchain interest or whatever. So we make sense of the otherwise quite senseless and unstructured, you know, content landscape. And that's really, really valuable because what companies now need to do is understand who's interacting with content online and because essentially, once you're interacting with enough content over time online, you are part of that community, that community of people who are interested in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or vegan cooking or Ethereum. And that would otherwise be impossible to identify these, these kind of hidden communities. And so we help you know, brands, publishers, um, people like this, understand these communities, understand what they care about. And ultimately, we kind of help them make the right content that, you know, is interesting, is relevant, and um, uh, entertains these communities online. It's so much better because of that whole, like, Facebook getting access to people and people are the commodity. As you say, it's all a bit upsetting that. To, 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 to turn the problem on its head and just say, well, where are the places that people who are interested in this, you know, what are the leading sources for this information? And then, okay, you want to be within that. I thought you gave a very interesting list too. Is this your current interest? Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Ethereum, and vegan food? Oh, I, <laughs> I, I would say that my Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills um, could definitely do with a little bit of uh, improvement. My wife would say that my vegan cooking is non-existent and my, I would definitely take a little boost to the uh, Ethereum portfolio as well. Does that what it say on your Twitter profile? Jiu-jitsu, vegan cooking, and Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly are all buzzwords aren't they uh, but I mean that's just really nice to hear someone solve the problem the other way because in a way the way you're solving it is the right way the other way is a bit like how you would imagine the Russian mafia would solve the problem do you know what I mean you know let's 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 work out what the people are and that we definitely will find it a very uncomfortable experience you know well it's funny the, the Russian mafia quite literally have um being quite big players in ad tech. The, it's one of the largest um, fraud kind of driven industries in the whole world. If you look even uh, last year, I believe it was, the FBI opened up uh, you know, a whole subpoena and an investigation on some of the biggest US uh, advertising companies. And you know, even, even the kind of the high and mighty Facebook have acknowledged that they've been providing fraudulent data out to, to brands as to the sort of the, the view rates and the click rates and things like that. It's a, it's a really messy, murky industry. So the Russian mafia or the Russian 
online gangsters, let's say, have been selling fraudulent data about consumer behavior, if you like, and then advertising has bought that data and then made adverts based on that data, all of which is fraudulent. Is that essentially the process, or some of which is fraudulent? Yes. The the, the industry has, um, since the internet allowed you to kind of essentially measure clicks and, and, and kind of, yeah, basically kind of attribute that someone watched this video or someone clicked on that ad or whatever. Then uh, there's been a whole kind of obsession, basically, with that. And, and, and the, the marketer has been forced by the CFO and the CEO and everyone else to drive up the amount of clicks and drive up the amount of eyeballs that see it. No one is really asking um, the question, who is seeing this? And no one is really asking, uh, Dominic, the question that you touch on, which is, actually, what are we putting in front of these people? You know, is it interesting? Is it engaging? Is it relevant to them? The most important thing by a country mile has been just, are we getting the clicks? And that's where you've, you've had the fraudsters enter in as they've, you know, whether it's running bots or whether it's, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the, you can certainly build technological capabilities to make, make the number of clicks look higher. And then you sell and then and, and that, that you make a lot of money that way. And I was going to say, why is this a Russian thing? Oh, it's just, it's not just a Russian thing. It's just any, anyone who, who has understood, in, you know, the technology early enough and got into the game has, um, has realized that most brands and most most advertisers have absolutely zero incentive to, to solve this problem. And, and they, they still get rewarded and promoted if they just get the clicks. And it doesn't matter where the clicks come from. I'm noticing when I look through my spam folder, as I'm occasionally known to do, because occasionally there's emails in there that I did actually want to receive. Whereas once upon a time, you know, every other email would be from some Nigerian prince who needs to get five million quid out of, out of <laughs> whatever it is. I'm noticing now, though, I would say 50, 40, 50 percent of the emails are in Russian, Russian script. So they seem to be owning the space that was once the preserve of the West African. <laughs> it's competitive space. It's a competitive we, space. Weirdly, yeah. we were about to start um, an outreach campaign in Nigeria because our head of taxes from Nigeria, he's, uh, he's president of the ATT, which is one of the tax bodies here. So big him up. He's Jeremy. president of the A-team, did you say? No, ATT, less exciting. Oh. That's the okay. Association of Tax Technicians. Oh, okay. <laughs> supposed to, Do they drive around in a little black bus saving the to, world? Yeah, I can't remember <laughs> the intro for the A-team. What was it? An undercover? Anyway, whatever. But we were going to do some outreach, which means sending emails to lots of Nigerian companies. And I'm relishing this idea. Finally, <laughs> payback. <laughs> Dear Mr. Nigerian, <laughs> you have written to us in the past. <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's a boring question, but, you know, underneath it, are you more optimistic about where this conversation is going in regard to the Facebooks and the media and the fucking, you know, all the chat that's going on in the moment and what happened in Australia? Do you think, do you think the conversation is going in the right direction? Yeah, I think having a conversation is the most important thing. Um, like I mentioned, you know, when I was really getting started with sort of the social internet was literally as it was properly arriving in the UK. I set up a business with my brother and some friends using uh, my university email address. So I was still at uni and you had to be, you had to have one of those university email addresses in order to get onto you know, the Facebook as it was then. So 
I saw a whole bunch of nefarious actors and, you know, your Cambridge Analytica, it was, it was known what they were doing at that time. And it was, you know, we all knew it was dodgy and it was something we absolutely ran a million miles away from. But then it was all hidden in darkness and no one talked about it and no one had the language to really have a conversation about it. I think fast forward 15 years and we can all talk about it and we're going to have different viewpoints on it. Um, but I think the most important thing is that most of these issues are sort of are out in the open. Um, and yeah, it's going to be, we were talking earlier about how do you pay for COVID? A very large, you know, a very large response from the governments is going to be to turn towards the tech companies and probably tax them higher, but also probably provide them a form of, you know, protection that they didn't have before. Like they will, we will essentially say, we guarantee your existence. We guarantee that you will not be kind of regulated out of our economy. Um, but we will, you know, so we'll almost treat you a bit more like a utility, but you'll be taxed accordingly. And that'll be a, it's a kind of interesting Faustian bargain that the tech companies are going to have to strike. Oh my God, I live in fear of that. Like one of the reasons governments are so strong in the, in the economy and the world in which we live is that they do so much. They provide so many essential services. You know, they're responsible, maybe not for providing transport, but for providing the transport infrastructure. They're responsible for education. They're responsible for healthcare. And then you see something like the internet, which is the most powerful learning tool ever invented, and it's largely free to the user anyway. The only price you pay is your data. And you see something like Uber. And now, you know, in the West End, if there are two of you making a short journey in the West End, it's cheaper to get on the Uber than it is for both of you to get the, the tube. And it's only going to get cheaper as cars go driverless. And you see, you know, health, you know, Silicon Valley is now attempting to, as it puts it, solve the healthcare problem using data. And a big part of that, for example, is this constant monitoring of your heartbeat, of your this, of your that, early warning signs, letting you know by your DNA if you're the sort of person that's likely to get Parkinson's disease and changing your habits now so that you don't get Parkinson's disease later. So gradually you're seeing tech starting to do all the things that government previously did or is doing now better and cheaper. And it will, and then as you know, governments steadily go more and more bankrupt. <laughs> people are going to start asking, "Well, why do we need you to provide education when we've got Zoom and we've got the internet and we've got this, that, and the other?" And they do it much cheaper. So you see, tech gradually replacing and superseding government. But at the moment, there's this sort of unholy alliance going on, or maybe it's holy, I don't know, but there's an alliance between the two. And, you know, Twitter's banning Trump to make sure the right guy gets elected. You know, there's, it's, it's, it is. You know, when Trump used Facebook better than anyone else in the previous election, everyone was outraged and thought it was disgusting. When Obama did it the election before, everyone thought he was a genius. And when basically censorship came in and Trump's many mouthpieces were cut off, there was a sort of general sigh of relief. But it, whichever way you look at it, tech's playing a role in huge political decisions. And so there is an alliance at the moment, but eventually one's going to, tech's going to supersede in, in, in many of the services the government provides. At what point do tech start having their own armies? I guess we ask ourselves. I mean, this is it. If you look at the, you know, the, the definition of the internet is basically uh, interconnected series of networks, right? Hence the net in internet. And what tech does is, you know, fundamentally and the internet does is it just allows people to 
connect and in richer, deeper, more kind of arguably more meaningful ways um, than ever before. So like good, when, when tech is good is when it allows essentially community coordination and allows people to solve problems themselves or you know, allows problems to be solved at the right level. Like in EU law, you talk about subsidiarity, basically a principle that issues should be solved by the people who are closest to them, right? And that's kind of, a, kind of how tech works in a way. And that's really great. Um, what is scary is when that is abused and, you know, the, the pipes that connect people together are fed with misinformation or are over, you know, or fed with like overly commercial or misleading information or, or something like that. That's when it gets really, really scary. And um, I don't know that we have really, you know, we're having this conversation we mentioned, but I don't think that we've, we've got any consensus um, or clarity about how to, to solve that. And I don't think, I think uh, honestly at COVID at the moment, we, most people don't, I don't know, most people are kind of just glad that, it, that those pipes exist and they're probably prepared to treat what goes down them as a slight sort of secondary issue because where would we be honestly right now without the ability for our kids to get educated online or the ability to speak to our loved ones who are otherwise isolated or... Oh my God, it saved us, hasn't it? It has. I mean, Martin, your business, you know, I remember being described it years ago, which helps. If you, you, someone goes, right, I've got this plant plot. I want to sell it to, you know, people over 30. They love plant pots because they're just about to have kids and they're bored, whatever the fuck it is, you know? And then you, you can run that through your machine and then go, right, well, the people chatting about plant pots who are over 30 are these communities over here. And, and, you know, you should produce this kind of advertising for that. So your, your business has got this sort of great ability to, to, to reverse engineer that. But, you know, do you, I guess I'm trying to say, you know, where do you sit on the sort of political correctness? Would your machine ever say, right, well, basically you want to go be really rude on this platform because it's going to get you a million likes. Do you know what I mean? And and it's not correct, but fucking hell, it will have an impact. Uh, you know, I mean, is that a strategy that that, that, that you would scrape for? Or? I mean, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. We, we, th- we talk about ourselves as a cultural intelligence platform. So essentially... We are exactly like you said, you know, trying to identify these different cultural communities. A community is essentially a group of people across geography, across time, across, um, you know, age, gender, across demographics who have a shared interest and passion. And those people are normally united together by that passion, um, often by shared, shared leaders, you know, shared spokespeople, influencers, whatever you want to call them shared behaviors, you know, shared platforms, things like that. And, and our technology is essentially about identifying those, those shared behaviors, those shared interests, those shared influences, those shared leaders, um, and therefore kind of defining that community. And that um, allows, the, allows the company, you know, designing their, their, their content or something like that to, to make it more sophisticated, right? To not talk about themselves and necessarily just their plant pot or their bar of soap or their deodorant that they sell, which is what they used to do. They used to be obsessed with themselves and their products and rather to couch the communication in what that community cares about and what they find inspirational and motivating and entertaining. So, you know, look, as a, as a tech business, our job is, or we take it as our job to provide the you know the the identification of that community 
the information about what they find entertaining and resonant. Um, and then it's kind of up for the it's up for the client to decide how they're gonna express that idea or how. right, right. You would say here is the community over here. If you want to go in there and say fuck plant plots, that's up to you. That's your that's your strategy, as it were. You know. Yeah, I think. And look, that's a familiar tech company approach. Is sort of look, we'll we'll shine, we'll show you the truth. What you do with that truth is sort of is sort of up to you. And but I've got to say, it's probably worth saying that um, the overwhelming majority of communities that our technology identifies and um, that we're able to sort of understand over time are. You know, it, it makes you feel warm inside. It makes you feel like humans are good people. These are people, you know, each community has the basic same sort of needs. They need to feel connected to other people. They need to feel relevant. They need to feel um, that they understand what's going on in the world and everything else. And only rarely does that get kind of is it ugly, basically, and does it kind of manifest? If something. you use your system, if you could system contract trends, you could use it to invest, didn't you? And pick stocks and things like that. Yeah, we, we, we refer to um, part of what we do as kind of a, almost a cultural stock exchange. So you can see, let's say that it's the vegan cooking community that you're um, you know, seeking to understand. You can see, obviously, all the other interests that people interested in vegan cooking have. And you can see how they wax and wane and get more and less sort of important over, over 12 months. And so that's, if you're, if you're a company and you're deciding whether to talk about sustainability through the lens of vegan cooking and vegetarianism, then you probably want to know if that is, you know, the equivalent of a stock that's going up or, a, or something that was big last year, but is on its way down. So we definitely use the, you know, analogy of a kind of cultural stock exchange for what are ultimately investment decisions for marketeers. How are we going to position our brand? What content are we going to make? Where are we going to put it? Are we going to use influencers to put it out? These are all financial investment decisions that we help make more effective, more efficient, less risky, more viable. Um, but yeah, and like, and and it also works in the you know we see we see trends arising within our technology that are pretty interesting. You know, years ago we would have seen we saw the kind of the rise of the selfie. There wasn't language to describe what selfie was really at that point, but there was certainly a type of shot that we saw certain communities constantly kind of posting among themselves, which was later became known as the, the selfie. We could see, um, you know, certain actors becoming really, really important and resonant within, within a particular community. And therefore you might say, well, shit, I want to back his next film or her next film. Or yeah, there, there's lots of basically, broadly speaking, culture and business used to be pretty far apart. And now good business is, basically understanding culture. And if you understand culture through a cultural intelligence platform like we've built, you, are, you have inches of advantage over those who are ignoring culture. Yeah. The most lucrative investment strategy has been repeatedly proven to be not value investing, but what's called trend following. The inventors of trend following, it was a guys, they invented this thing called the turtle technique. And these two men had a bet that they could teach the turtle technique, trend following technique to, to anyone. And that was what was the basis of the film Trading Places. 
That was the, the story of those two became the basis of training. But even so, if you, whatever the trend is, whether it's a trend that, you know, the gold price is going to go up over the next 10 years or it's Bitcoin or, or it's the fact that, you know, Game of Thrones is going to be huge or, you, you know, there's a real desire out there for retro punk music or whatever the trend is. If you're able to, one, like, like I've always thought I've got a nose for this kind of stuff, I must say. And I think the reason is, is if I'm able to articulate to myself, the point is that if I like it, there's going to be loads of other people that like it as well. So that's the way I've rash I've reasoned it with myself. But if you're able to do that, notice the trend, identify what it is, identify how to play play it. I mean, it's not just noticing; it's it's all those things, isn't it? It it absolutely is. It absolutely is. You know. Um, let's say Pepsi. Pepsi did everything right when they did their Kendall Jenner kind of, they tried to insert themselves as a brand into Black Lives Matter, right? In textbook terms, they did everything right. They looked at what was going on in the world. They got an influencer who had, I mean, some credibility-ish um, to talk about that issue. And they, you know, they and, and they executed quite an artful piece of advertising to say Pepsi cares about what's going on in the world. But the execution of it, the way that they inserted themselves into that conversation that was very, very important for specific communities, like went to the heart of the identity of certain people, was absolutely appalling. And, you know, and they paid the price for it. Their, you know, their stock price plummeted. A lot of people lost their jobs. It was a really bad execution. But it's become very hard for big brands to insert themselves in any subtle conversation. Isn't that partly what's changing? It's, it, it, I mean, can a big brand insert themselves in something? I mean, I can't stand it when they do it. Like, it just looks so artificial when they, they you know, somebody decides they're going to put, you know, some woke messaging in their content. It just looks artificial. And it's like, just do what you do and sell the product that you sell and don't jump on some political bandwagon because a lot of the time you end up alienating as many people as you find favour with. I mean, Mercedes, I heard Lewis Hamilton this morning sign up with Mercedes-Benz again and, and then they announced on radio, BBC World Service, and the cars will be in black again as Mercedes-Benz has agreed with Lewis Hamilton to stand in line with Black Lives Matter and have black cars. So that's a bit of a lie. Are you serious? I mean, that's just... Mercedes is in black because... I can't speak on behalf of black people, but if I heard that, I'd just be, oh, please. Yeah. Are you seriously confusing? Uh, You know, please, go away. Let's talk about GameStop. I don't know if you spotted it, Martin, but there was obviously... Um, you know, chat boards are incredibly powerful in stock trading. There's huge, you know, it's one. Of, a lot of retail investors use them as their first board of call. Um, and when they ally, they're an incredibly powerful force. Yeah, I think I think what we see with GameStop is it's a it's a complicated issue. I think there's lots of issues there about kind of consumer protection and. Robinhood's terms of service and how they responded to the crisis and everything else. And, and you know, so it's not a black and white issue at all. But what I do think it shows and has shown in a really obvious um, hit and where it hurts way is, you know, you have to understand the power of ordinary people who can connect together through technology. Essentially, it is the defining force of probably the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Understanding that, taking it seriously, um, recognizing if you're a company, recognizing that your 
place in the world, honestly, it's, you know, it sounds like it's big fighting language, but honestly, your place in the world has been turned upside down by the internet. It's something that people have been slow to realize um, or to, to accept. The, the, you know, the, the, the power that companies used to have was basically a power to kind of command people's attention, right? There was only, there was only really, because the internet didn't exist, people couldn't really connect together as easily. It required kind of physical connecting together, which is, which is harder to do and, and less frequently happens. And so companies had, you had control over you by the fact that they could buy adverts online or buy adverts in magazines or buy billboards or whatever. And then obviously the internet happens and you, they can't rely on buying that attention anymore. And the last 10, 15 years has been this kind of uneasy situation where they know that to be true, but they've just kind of kept doing what they used to do. <laughs> um, and I think for me, GameStop was just interesting because it said, look, this is a real example of ordinary people coming together and, and hitting you where it hurts. And I think there's, there's a lot to take out of that, whether you're in the financial industry, whether you're in the communications industry, whether you're in any business sort of sphere. You need to um, you need to acknowledge what's your version of GameStop. Where can a community come together and say we disagree with your woke message about or your your attempt to introduce yourself into this topic? Or it's essentially people power, and it's something that companies need to have a strategy for. What was the, the basics of GameStop? Was that this company was a bit shit? So all the hedge fund people and everything, because it was a traditional bricks and mortar selling games. They were like, "Oh, screw this company," and then that got wind in Reddit. And, and Reddit started off a whole like, we like this company or we hate hedge funds or a bit of both. You know, is that what happened? I, you know, I, it blew up as a story, but I, I never actually really understood the basics, I wondered. Let me explain, Andy. It was GameStop is a chain of video game stores in America. And exactly as you say, uh, Wall Street had decided it was another one of these businesses that was destined to be disrupted by the internet and go down the tubes the same way as most retailers gone down the tubes. And then there was one guy, he went by the name of Deep Fucking Value uh, on this chat board. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and, and he said, no, this company, they've got this wrong. Wall Street has got this wrong. It's cheap, it's undervalued. He did loads of research. He found it was the most shorted stock on the um, New York Stock Exchange. He also realised that the, the short position exceeded the share count, which is possible with leverage and all the rest of it. But then he noted that only about 25 or 30% of the stock is actually free trading. So the short position ended up being four or five times the amount of stock that actually trades. And so he kept buying it and he kept buying long dated calls and he kept posting his trades on this chat board. And gradually, over a period of many months, he's, I think the investment, his investment from high to low went from something like $30,000 to, it might have been even $30 million. It was an extraordinarily well-researched, methodical bet. And just because this was a retail investor from New Jersey and not some whiz kid hedge fund, it doesn't make any difference. He'd done the research and he'd found 
an area that he thought the market was making a mistake and he placed in bet his bet. But where it went viral is he kept posting his monthly returns on this chat board and more and more people were realising it. And then GameStop obviously touched a nerve for a, a certain generation of Americans who'd grown up going to GameStop to buy their video games. And it just grew and grew and grew. And it's exactly as Martin described, how these trends evolve. And if you're able to see it early enough and jump on board, you know, it, it can do you very, very well. Is that a fair enough description of what happened? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And you know what 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 it I think what how it started and what it became might be two different things. You know, it, it started that way, and then eventually it certainly became a kind of wow. Look at what we are doing. Look at what we a group of people who share, you know, share no. You know, I mean, look, there may be a demographic. They might be a bunch of like young white dudes. Um, but what you know, what what. What defined them, I think, was more this, you know, FU to, to, to Wall Street. And that's when it really got power. You know, it's when they realized they could do something as a group, as a community. Yeah. I mean, actually, it wasn't Wall Street. It was just a couple of hedge funds but that took the hit. It wasn't. But, but even so... Never let the truth get in the way of a convenient, you know, narrative <laughs> that helps build that community. So Precisely. That's why it's not a necessary... I'm not saying it's like a great story one to emulate or anything like that. Um, I'm sure some people lost out pretty bad and I'm sure there's some pretty bad personal stories in there. But it's a, it's an, a remarkable example of what can happen um, on a, you know, essentially a site that is um, not even built for that, right? Reddit is a multi-purpose site full of different communities of people with totally, totally different interests. But people with, if you allow people to connect as Reddit does, amazing things can happen. And that's what happened here. It's a bit like um, the truth of the city that no one ever really admits is that a lot of it was always about insider trading and that it was always about your mate ringing you up saying, by the way, why don't you get some of this? And that was really, really has gone on for a long time all around the world. You know, it's sort of whether it be illegal or not. That's a, like a trend thing, isn't it? You know, and it's the same thing. These so you know, Elon Musk talking about Bitcoin or these social influencers. They can create trends, you know, through doing it. You can create trends through advertising. Actually, you can create trends in advertising. They argue that it's much easier to do it through out-of-home advertising. You know, posters in the street. You can create trends with. You know, it's harder to do it in digital advertising. It could become so. So it's this power to sort of create a trend, isn't it? So you're kind of saying the power is. The power is with the people. If you can, and there was a key bit of that story, I thought, that, that the guy who was obviously a very intelligent, very methodical, and put together a very mathematical, scientific basis. He didn't just go, oh, I'm going to buy lots of stuff. Join me, guys. It was like, for those who wanted to read into it, would have read into it and said, oh, this guy's really thought about this. He really knows what he's talking about sort of thing. So if you want to create a trend, you know, fundamentally you've got to understand a subject very well, and then you can use these tools to lead a, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, it's, it's very curious because trend, I'm always trying to get to the point in my head. It's like trends are just bullshit. They're just fashion. You know, it's like, will, will we buy games like this or will we buy it like that? Will, do we buy it's it? another word for fashion. Yeah. It yeah. So it's, it's, you know, we Amazon's a trend, but their business model is so efficient, it's annoying to buy something through another means, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can hype, you can hype anything. It's got to have the legs to be able to stand the the hype and 
and prove it's and that's worth. what he did through his research. He hyped Oh, it. yeah, he, he... Well, it was his research that caused the hype. Yeah, 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 It yeah. was the other way around, and his returns, or that certainly triggered it. I think that's the really interesting thing. We've... Even the language, you know, companies, like I said, have been used to driving the what's hot and what's not, what's in fashion, what's not, right? And li- quite literally in areas of fashion, um, but also around, you know, entertainment, music. These gatekeepers have, we believe, have kind of um, dictated those things. And even more, more recently, the sort of language we use of influencer is this idea that the people just get influenced by these people who, for some reason, have influence. Actually, the reality is all of these things start with some insight with some seed and it could be the kind of you know quantitative insight that the guy for wall street bets brought together which shows hey here's an insight here's an opportunity let's get behind it or it could be a more kind of qualitative insight that there is um certain type of you know interest that's bubbling or a certain behavior online a certain type of you know um music that certain people are liking and really what data is doing and tech is doing and what we're doing is trying to show those show those things early so that people can get behind them and support them and speak on behalf of them rather than this kind of old idea of um, of creating them from totally nothing. Martin, we end our podcast with two sort of generic questions and I'm going to ask you the first of them now. What are you most excited about for the future of your business? Yes, yeah, so I think we've, at Codec, we've spent, you know, five years basically building best-in-class technology to, to, to make sense of these communities, to identify them, to help companies understand them um, and, and, and reach them. You know, it's been a very tech-heavy data play. What we're now being asked by, you know, our big customers, the L'Oreal's, the Unilever's, the P&G's, the Diageo's, et cetera, is can you actually help us make the content? Can you help us reposition our brands as more, concerned and interested in what these communities really care about can you kind of do the traditional um you know services piece and i think we're at a really interesting point where we either kind of take the capital to build out the ability to do that ourselves or we're in a number of you know very interesting big strategic partnership conversations with some of the more traditional sort of marketing and research businesses about using our data to 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 power that so i think um yeah, I think it's integrating the the tech and data that we've built with the you know with, with the other piece that the, the brands want. That's that's very exciting. The Pepsi effect. Everyone's going. Oh, hang on. Tell them from me to focus on the product and stay out of politics. <laughs> there we go. And the message is loud and clear. It's interesting. I went. I went to a presentation. This is about four or five years ago from an ad guy, and he was just saying how you know you think back to the great ads of you know the seventies and eighties, you know the Hamlet ads and things like that. You know, ads were sort of forty fifty percent creative, and forty fifty percent market research. In fact, the bloke who invented the Morris Minor, whose name escapes me, and the Mini you know, the market research told him that people wanted a bigger car than a Morris Minor. And he said, no, they don't. They say they do, but they don't actually want it. They want a Morris Minor. They say they want the bigger car, but when push comes to shove, they can't afford it. They want the smaller one. But now ad- advertising is sort of 5% creative and 95% data-driven, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the mistake that people make is, um, you know, classic market research is like, ask someone something 
and use the, the kind of specific response that they use back. I don't think that's what you should be looking for. I think good a good methodology looks to get to like deeper need states and um, like social and emotional needs and things like that. And that's you can't do that by running a survey. You need to do that with more sophisticated techniques, like actually seeing where these people spend their time, what they consume, who they're connected to, who are influential voices, et cetera, in that community. And then that allows you to still be creative. So you're still layering creativity on top of an insight into what people need and want, but you've never sort of directly asked them. And it's the classic Steve Jobs, you know, uh, or with it, Henry Ford, actually, sorry, he said, um, you know, if we had asked people what they wanted, they would have said, you know, faster horse-drawn carriages or whatever. So there's, there's a lot of problems with relying on direct questions and using direct responses. Last question. If there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Well, I mean, there's this virus. I don't know if you've, if you've heard about it. But um, <laughs> uh, apart from that, hopefully that will sort itself out or governments will sort that one out. Um, look, I think, you know, we, we talked about the approach to education um, and the options available to sort of parents uh, in this new working world. I'd love to see some genuine options there. But I guess the thing I would change, and I think we will see it, uh, will be sort of a change in younger people's approach towards careers. Um, so kind of out with the traditional sort of career mentality, um, the kind of the fear that comes when you leave university and say, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do next. And um, I don't think my CV is going to make sense if I go and do something crazy and bizarre. And I, you know, obviously having the privilege to work with lots of lots of young smart people over a career in entrepreneurship, I've always sort of tried to encourage people to think about things as you you eventually get to draw a line of best fit. You know, it's not that each sequence in your career needs to make logical sense one by one. It's that you do a bunch of things. You leave a bunch of you know, you have a scattergraph basically of your experiences and then you draw a line of best fit through it to make sense of it and make a narrative out of it. And I really hope that over the next five years, school leavers and university graduates will embrace that and do more bold and risky things in the knowledge that they'll be able to look back and make sense of it in the future. Uh, so yeah, that's my hope. That's a great answer. As long as you just got to make sure you're learning and adding skills, I guess. But yeah. Great stuff. Well, uh, Martin, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I do hope we can meet in, in, in the flesh sometime in the, in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, if people want to find out about you and Codec online, can you please tell our listeners how they would do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Martin underscore D underscore Adams. Um, the Codec website is at codec.ai and my personal website is martindadams.com. Um, and yeah, I do, um, I'm very passionate, as I said earlier, um, kind of have a portfolio approach to life. So if you're, uh, if you're hearing any of this and you're, you're wondering about how your business can kind of smash it coming out of COVID, let, let's have a chat. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, Martin Adams, thank you very much. Thank you. 
And uh, thanks very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. And Andy and I will be back with another show very soon. In the meantime, please write us a nice review on uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please give us, smash up the five stars, as they say. And uh, please uh, subscribe to the show as well. We'll be back with another episode very soon. In the meantime, cheerio. Cheerio.